As we approach Easter, I want us to focus our hearts and our minds upon Jesus and upon his death and resurrection. And in our last session, we looked at the connection between Jesus and the Passover, how he ate that Passover meal with his disciples the night before he went to the cross, how Jesus died as our Passover lamb. He was a sacrifice for us. And in this session, we want to look at a portion of the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. And what's significant about this passage is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is headed to the cross and he speaks about that to his disciples, about his coming death and resurrection. But we also see what is going on in the minds of some of his disciples, perhaps in the hearts of some of his disciples, and the contrast between what Jesus is doing and what they are thinking about and angling for is uh, instructive for us and helps us to think about what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. So let's look at the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now let's stop there for now and notice what's happening. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows what is going to happen there. In fact, he's about to tell his disciples what's going to happen there. But notice that Mark tells us that Jesus was in the lead. He says in verse 32 that Jesus was walking ahead of them and that this provoked both amazement and fear in those who were following them. Uh, Jesus was not shrinking back from what he knew was ahead of him. Right? He's walking uh, ahead uh, in apparent determination. Right, He's not shrinking back. And again, those who are following him, some of them, it says, <clears throat> uh, were amazed. Right, And that those who followed were afraid. Uh, some were amazed, perhaps because they had some idea of what awaited him. Uh, and yet he seemed undaunted. Right, Or uh, perhaps... They were amazed because uh, maybe they thought uh, Jesus is finally going to do what we've been hoping he was going to do, and this is going to be great. I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to know uh, for sure what they were amazed by, but probably his seeming uh, determination in the face of, of coming suffering. Right? And then some were afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, perhaps because they had some idea of what awaited Jesus. He had been talking about it. And they didn't want to lose him. Or they didn't want to lose their own lives. They were afraid that it would go badly. Uh, either way, Jesus provokes both amazement and fear by his uh, determination to go to Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples what's going to happen. He knows what he's going to encounter there. Verse 33, right? He says, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man, that's Jesus, that's how he refers to himself often, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death 
and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and so on. He says they're going to mock him, they're going to spit on him, they're going to kill him, uh, they're going to flog him, right? And after three days, he will rise. So he tells them about his coming suffering, his coming death, and his coming resurrection. He knows that's going to happen, and he knows where it's going to happen. He knows that's going to happen in Jerusalem. None of that is going to take Jesus by surprise. None of it should have taken his disciples by surprise because Jesus told them in advance, and this is not even the first time he told them about what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. Right? So how should the disciples have responded to this? Right? Well, it would have been legitimate for them to respond with grief and sorrow. Because Jesus himself, on the eve of his death, is going to say, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Right? He's, while he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's experiencing extreme sorrow uh, as he contemplates his, uh, his impending death, where he's going to take our place and, and uh, drink the cup of God's wrath against our sin as he dies in our place. It, so sorrow and grief would have been a legitimate response from the disciples because that's how Jesus himself is going to respond. Uh, it would have also been legitimate to uh, have some hopefulness, right? Because Jesus has said on the, on the other side of his death, he's going to rise. And if they could have understood what that meant, right? There would have been some legitimate uh, hope moving forward, right? Because uh, the scriptures uh, predicted, prophesied this coming resurrection. Um, but it never happened before. So it would have also been legitimate for them to be asking questions. How is this going to happen? Um, what do you mean? Uh, wh wh what is this going to look like? But notice how James and John respond. Right? They don't respond in legitimate ways. Right? They respond in a way that ought to trouble us and perhaps even convict us. All right, so here's what it says next. Verse 36. This is right after Jesus has said, guys, here's what's going to happen. Here's what I'm going to endure. Here's what's going to take place on the other side of my death. It's going to be resurrection. It says, verse 36, excuse me, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us with whatever we ask of you. Now that sounds like an audacious statement anyway, right? Even if it didn't come right on the heels of Jesus saying, I'm about to experience horrible, terrible things. But James and John say, we want you to do whatever we're about to ask you for. We want you to give us whatever we want. All right? So, can, I mean, can you imagine Jesus just told you he's not merely going to die. He's going to be put to death. It's one thing to say, you know, I'm coming to the end of my life, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But to say, well, I'm going to be handed over and mocked and flogged and killed. And then they respond by saying, hey, this is what we want you to give us. This is what we want you to do for us. They're thinking primarily about themselves. Right? And what they want is this. Uh, verse 36, it says, And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Okay, now, what are they asking for? Well, 
at its most basic level, what they're asking for is they are asking for uh, seats of high honor in Jesus's kingdom. Right? They want to be at his right hand and his left hand in his glory, meaning when he becomes king, right? when he um, takes his seat on the throne um, and you know, enters into his glory, so to speak. Now, on the one hand, you have to give them credit for uh, continuing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised king. That's a good thing. But on the other hand, they have a um, serious misunderstanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. It's not that he's not going to be king. He is king, right? But before he takes his seat on his throne, he's going to take our place on the cross. He's going to suffer and bear the weight of our sin. And then he's going to rise, and then he's going to be exalted to God's right hand, where he's going to sit on his throne in heaven. The disciples don't understand all that. Right? Jesus is not going to the throne until he's gone to the cross, and they aren't going to sit with him until they have borne their own crosses, in a sense, endured their own suffering, hardship, persecution. So at a minimum, what they're asking for, they're asking for seats of honor, right? But why do they want those seats of honor, right? Is it for prestige, prominence? Is it for power? Is it for glory? Is it so people will, will look at them and be impressed with them? Is it so that they can say, look at all the people I am above or over? Is it so that they can tell all the people under them what they ought to do, make them do the things they want them to do. Uh, all of those things are probably mixed in with what James and John are asking for, right? when they ask to have these seats of honor at Jesus' right and left hand. Or at least we could say any of those motives might have been mixed in with this request. Right? One of the ways we know that uh, James and John might be thinking this kind of thing, not only from this is not only from this question, but also from what we're told about them in Luke chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is, you know, around the same time. Uh, and it says, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, same two guys, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. So James, and we know already that in the heart of James and John is this desire to have power over those under them or to exercise power uh, or judgment against those who are under them. So uh, all of that is probably mixed in, right, with their request to have the seats at Jesus' right hand and at his left hand when he enters into his glory. Now, here's... 
what I want us to think about uh, at this point in the story. Do you think that there are still people today who outwardly, at least, seem to be walking with Jesus, following Jesus, but in their hearts, what they are after is a seat of honor, a position of power, the ability to rule over others. Absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. And we need to be aware of that. Right? And when we, when we see that happening, especially in, in Christian leaders, when it becomes evident that um, what they are really about right, is not imitating Christ, but about what they can get out of, following Christ, what, what power, what prominence, what prestige, what worldly honor and glory they can get out of following Jesus, that ought to trouble us and dishearten us, right? That ought to make us uh, wary in a sense, right? We need, to, um, we need to watch out for that kind of thing. And not only do we need to watch out for that in others, we need to watch for it in our own hearts. We need to make sure that when we hear Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me, when we hear him say, I'm going to the cross for you and then I'm going to rise, that we aren't sort of in our minds and hearts saying, yeah, 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 all that's great, but here's what I want you to do for me. Here's what I'm hoping to get out of this. We need to check our own hearts and see if we are after the same things that James and John are after. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably have to say that at least at some points along the way, that is what's in our heart. Right? Hopefully not too much of the time, but probably at least some of the time. So that we can be honest about that and reckon with that, ask God to forgive us, ask God to change us, ask God to help us have not that kind of heart, but the heart of Christ, to be true, uh, to be truly following Jesus in his way, right? to be imitating him. Here's what that looks like. Uh, Jesus responds to James in John verse uh, 38, says, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's talking about his coming suffering and death. Verse 39, they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So in other words, they are going to experience some kind of suffering, right? Not, they're obviously not going to go to the cross like Jesus. They're not going to bear our sin like Jesus. But James and John are going to suffer. John's going to be exiled to Patmos on account of the word of God. He tells us in Revelation 1, James is going to be uh, martyred in the book of Acts. He's going to be put to death because he follows Jesus. So they are going to suffer. But Jesus says, you know, to give you those positions, that's not not mine to grant. But here's what happens next, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, why are the others, the other disciples, the other ten, why are they so upset? 
All right, now, uh, I used to think that um, the reason why the other 10 were upset is because they all wanted the same thing James and John wanted. They just didn't ask for it before James and John could. Now, that probably was the case for at least some of them. All right, but perhaps some of them were indignant because uh, they recognized that James and John were trying to get above them instead of walking alongside them. Perhaps they were indignant because they were thinking, I thought we were all equals here. I thought we were all in this together. And you, you guys are jockeying for position, trying to get ahead of the rest of us. And it's not that I want to be ahead of you, but I also don't particularly want you to be ahead of me. All right, so they're all upset about what James and John are asking for. And Jesus responds by saying this, okay, verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. All right, this seems to be right a a rebuke or at least a pushback against James and John. All right, Jesus is saying, "Here's what I don't want you to be like. You know that the pagans, the Gentiles, those who are uh, you know apart from God." you know what they do, right? You know that those who are the the great ones, the rulers, what they do is they lord it over other people. They use their position and power in ways that serve themselves. That's what they do. Um, And that's not how I want you to act. That's not what you are going to do, Jesus says. What does he want them to do? Right? He says, but it shall not be so among you, but he says, middle of verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So I don't want you chasing um, dominion, authority, etc., so that you can lord it over other people, so that you can have people under you, so that you can be important and have all this prominence and power and prestige. I don't want you doing that, acting that way, chasing that. Instead, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be a servant. If you want to be, a, if you want to be great, serve. Serve others. And then he points us to his own example, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, so... Again, Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. Here's the reason why you ought to serve instead of seeking to um, be like the Gentiles who lorded over others, the Gentile rulers, rulers who lorded over others. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Even Jesus, who was worthy of having other people come to serve him, all people come to serve him, didn't come in order to be served. He came to serve others. He came, he goes on to say, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to get, but to give. Jesus was serving James and John. 
Jesus was about to die as a ransom for James and John. But James and John were not following Jesus in his service of others. They were looking for prominence and position for themselves. When Jesus calls us to serve like him, though, here's what he's doing. He's doing a couple of things. One, he is reminding us how he served us. But here's the thing. James and John don't stay like this. Right? James and John end up changed. Their hearts are changed. They end up becoming more faithful followers of Jesus. They, they end up being servants. They end up being great because they served, because they preached, because they gave of themselves, because they poured out their lives for others to hear about Jesus and to know the love of Jesus. And when Jesus said this to them and when he says this to us, this is why I came, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He reminds us of how much he gave up to save us. He reminds us of his own heart of service, how he serves us, how he laid down his life for us. And the more we let those truths sink into us, the more our lives should begin to look like his. Serving and giving rather than plotting and grasping. So as we think about Jesus and his death and resurrection, as we lead up to Easter, two things I want to be on our minds and hearts. One, remember what Jesus did for you and for me. Remember how he left heaven Though he was the eternal son of God, is the eternal son of God, he left heaven and was born as a man and lived on the earth and suffered and died for our sake. That he served us. He humbled himself for us, for our good, for our benefit. We see his heart of service and all the people he healed and touched and cast demons out of and raised from the dead and all those he taught and ministered to and fed. Right. Remember how he has served us and how he has loved us and given himself for us. How he ransomed us by laying down his own life. Remember how much he has given up for us and what a glorious good gift that is that should cause us to rejoice and be grateful for the love that he has shown us. Feel that. Feel how much he has loved you how much he has given for you in love, right? But then also think about what it means to follow Jesus, to follow the one who went to the cross, to follow the one who served others all along the way, to follow the one who poured himself out for others, to follow the one who didn't go to Jerusalem to sit on a throne, but who went to Jerusalem pour out his life as a ransom for many. Following Jesus is not about what we can get in terms of worldly honor, prestige, glory, position, prominence, all those kinds of things. Even though there are people out there who make it look that way. Instead, following Jesus is about being loved and then pouring out love to others because of the way we've been loved. It's about receiving the love of Christ 
and then showing that love to other people. It's about watching Jesus go to the cross and then being willing daily to take up our own cross and follow him. And when we measure ourselves against Jesus, of course, we are going to fail. We put ourselves up against James and John. We may see way more similarity between us and them than we want to. But the good news is that even after James and John acted this way, Jesus still went to the cross for them. And even though Jesus knew you and I would act this way, he went to the cross for us. And not only did he go to the cross to pay for our sin, he gave us the Holy Spirit who is at work in us to change us, to change our hearts so that we aren't grasping and jockeying for position and uh, desiring power and prestige and honor, but so that our hearts become more like the heart of Christ, that we are more eager to love and serve and pour ourselves out for others. May God help us to look to Christ and believe and receive the love that he's shown us in his death and resurrection. And may his love by his spirit transform us so that we walk more and more like Jesus, taking up our cross to follow him. God bless.